Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 10 of The Populist. And in this episode, it's a short follow-up following episode 9, which is my conversation with Professor Craig Parsons, talking about the executive and the different uh, forms that it can take and a lot of different things involved in that. But one thing we didn't get to was explaining executive stability. And this is really important for your Unit 3 writing assignment. Okay, so you're going to want to make sure that you read this, and we're going to talk about some some stuff that is going to be directly um, important for you answering that question and give you some insight and some different options on, on what to do. Okay, so the episode outline really has four things. We're going to talk about the debate around whether a parliamentary or presidential system is more stable. We're going to discuss the role of the presidential style and how that affects executive stability. Then we're going to talk about the patterns of parliamentary rule and go into a little bit of details about what makes governments endure or collapse. And then finally, kind of go through the, the two main approaches to democratic institutions and executives in divided societies. Okay, so... So to start out, we're talking about the debate surrounding executive stability. All right, remember this is about stability, not necessarily which system is better or more preferable. Okay, so on the side that says the parliamentary system is better, you have one lens. All right, and in your book on page 245 in the insights, it's got his kind of five reasons why uh, parliamentary systems are better. And... The first one is that in a presidential system, you've got competing or dual legitimacy versus clear legitimacy in a parliamentary system. All right, so a presidential system divides power between the legislature and the executive. So the president gets elected and has a mandate, and the legislature gets elected and has a mandate as well. All right, so you have this dual legitimacy. Both sets of um, elected officials can say, no, I got elected on my platform and, you know, I'm there to do what I campaigned on. All right. And this may cause tension and lead to um, less stability in the executive. Okay. So, so because parliaments fuse the legislative and executive, it makes clear that the executive heads of the government and you avoid some of these, these pitfalls. And I mean, you think of the American system, um, really it, it leads to deadlock more than anything, um, just because the, the separate, the dual mandates, okay. Or the dual legitimacy. The next argument for parliamentary systems being more stable is fixed versus flexible terms of office. So because presidential systems have rigid terms for presidents, if you get somebody in there that you don't like, you're stuck with them unless they do something that's impeachable. All right. And you're stuck with them for whatever that term is, four years, five years, depending on which country. Whereas a parliamentary system, they've got flexible terms because of the no confidence vote. So if you get an executive in there that people don't like or that isn't popular or not doing their job, then the parliament can get rid of them. Unlike, and it, not just that they can get rid of them, because you can get rid of a president through the impeachment process, but the vote of no confidence is much simpler, all right, and not as involved as the impeachment process. Okay. Um, the next big point that Lynn's makes is winner take all versus power sharing. 
And he argues that a presidential system leads to one party controlling the whole of the executive branch, whereas in a parliamentary system, it leads to more power sharing because it often requires a coalition to form a government. So you have multiple parties and multiple interests being represented in the executive, whereas a presidential system, like in the United States or Mexico or Brazil, places like that, you aren't going to get multiple parties. You get one. The, in the United States, for eight years, we had Barack Obama and the Democrats controlled the executive. Now we have uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans control the executive. All right. Whereas in the parliamentary systems, you can get multi-party coalitions that are going to be more representative and force people to come to more compromise, making it a little more stable, at least according to Lenz. So the next argument that Lenz makes concerns the presidential versus prime ministerial style. All right, so presidential systems tend to lead to a more authoritarian and bombastic style of leadership, whereas parliamentary systems rely much more on negotiations because prime ministers don't want to alienate potential partners. And as I just said, with most governments and parliamentary systems needing to be a coalition, this ends up being more important. It kind of tones down some of the divisive rhetoric and it, it allows gr- different groups to work together better, is what Lenz would say. The next argument that Lenz would make is that you get outsider versus insider executives. And what he means by this is presidents are more likely to be outsiders, and they may have significantly different ideas about policy and governing than established parties. We don't have to look very far. This is exemplified in uh, President Donald Trump right now. He is broken with orthodoxy over the last from the last thirty years, so he's he was definitely an outsider in that sense. Um, and then prime ministers, Lenz argues, are more likely to be insiders that have risen through the ranks of parliament through time. So think back to um, the previous. Not necessarily the previous one, but one of last week's podcasts where I talked about um, how the the parliamentary system and the party system that it has, it kind of puts future executives in there. They have to run for office first and then kind of move their way up in the ranks before they're able to actually be the executives. So Lenz argues that these factors make parliamentary systems more stable, and he argues that presidential systems are more likely to be taken over by authoritarians. Now, this isn't without criticism. Um, the the article that you have to read for class, uh, Menwaring and Shugart, is, is critiquing Juan Lins. And there's, on page 246, there's an insight box that breaks down kind of their main arguments, And on a theoretical level, parliamentarism or being a parliamentary system, it depends on other institutions. So it depends on political parties. It depends on the electoral system. So different institutions can also make a parliamentary system more unstable than Lynn's argues that it is, at least according to Manwaring and Sugar. And he, they also argue that one party majority, a one-party majority gives the prime minister a lot of control and power. So if you are in a system where one party normally wins in a parliamentary system, it's not necessarily a given that the parliamentary system itself is going to be a reason for stability. Because if you 
one party wins with a single party majority, they can basically do what they want. But if they lose the next election and that party has a single party majority, then they can almost reverse everything that just happened. So it can lead to instability. But their argument on the theoretical level is that it's not the parliamentary system all by itself that is inherently more stable. There are other institutions like political parties, like the electoral rules that make a parliament that can make a parliamentary system more stable, but also that a parliamentary system can be winner take all, as I just described with the one party majority. Now, there's an empirical critique that they put out as well. And this is just what we see in the world that doesn't quite match up with this, with the, not this, but what doesn't quite match up with the argument that parliamentary systems are inherently more stable. And what, what they point out is that parliamentary countries have tended to often be wealthier European countries. And what actually might be causing democracy and stability in Europe is wealth. While poverty is causing authoritarianism and instability in places like Africa or South America, all right, these these um, European countries are also smaller, and many of your stable parliamentary systems were also found in former British colonies. So it could be other factors that are leading to this stability, and not the parliamentary system, and. Then they they show that the presidential countries have also been, they generally tended to be poorer countries, often found in South America and Africa. And they also tend to be larger geographically, so you have more people and more land to, uh, to rule over. So that is the critique from Manwaring and Sugar, but make sure that you're reading the article because they break it down, they go into more detail, but there are two sides to this coin. That's the point, is that there are some people that are going to say that the parliamentary system is more stable because of X, Y, and Z, but then there is the critique that, no, it's not necessarily what, what's doing the work. So you know, make sure that you're reading through that article and and thinking about where you come down on that. So the next factor that we want to look at that helps to kind of explain executive stability is the role of style of presidential rule. How like what what's the style of the president? How do they rule? What are some of the things that they do? And and some of these styles are are less desirable. But in general, elected leaders in a democracy are expected to work within a society that has rules and other institutions like legislatures and courts. And but executives also have big powers to influence the economy. I mean, they can propose they can propose budgets, they collect taxes, they can regulate the economy, and they also staff key economic institutions like a central bank and like the finance minister or the um, head of the treasury. So one style that we'll talk more about in week 10, but it's worth bringing up now, is populism. And this is the political approach in which executive leaders make direct appeals to the people, and they seek to develop direct political ties with the masses. And what this leads to a lot of the times is populist presidents use the resources of the government to reinforce their own personal power. 
and they often spend large amounts of money to help supporters at the detriment of longer-term fiscal health of the country. So, yes, you might have a core group of supporters that you want to reward for getting you into office, but in doing that, it can damage the fiscal health of your country. And a great example is uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. I mean, look up some articles about Venezuela now. It's a nightmare. But it didn't just start today. This has been something ongoing for a long time. And they have a long history of populism in Venezuela. Now, another style that we will actually talk more about next week, because it borders on authoritarianism, is delegative democracy. So in this, I mean, somebody is elected, and but once they're elected, the president gets substantial powers. They see themselves as being delegated power for a period of time. So they sit in the office and they basically can do what they want. They don't see themselves as representing the people's interests. They see them as the people elected me. Now I get to do what I see as best. All right. And this is also on in your book on page 247, uh, O'Donnell, because that's who, who wrote the article. So you'll get a little blurb about it this week, but next week you'll get to read the entire article. Um, and as I said, this borders on authoritarianism because there aren't that many checks on the president's power. And there's little accountability to other institutions like courts and legislatures because they just don't have a whole lot of influence. And it's not entirely authoritarian. It's not, it's not as if elections don't matter or term limits don't matter because these people generally will respect some limitation, often elections and term limits. But when they're in office, they kind of, you know, rule with a heavy hand and, and do as they please. All right. So that's a couple different styles of presidential rule that are considered by many to be less desirable. Okay, talking about populism and delegative democracy. And populism can, you know, we'll talk more in, in week 10 about this, but it can come from the right and come from the left. I mean, Donald Trump is considered a populist, but so was Bernie Sanders. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about that and get into, get into the details. So the next thing to discuss is patterns of parliamentary rule. So what makes governments endure or collapse? Because you, you see wide-ranging patterns of stability and instability in parliamentary systems. And some of these, these governments are unstable, like Italy is, is one of the better examples in one that your book gives, where it's generally considered a weak parliamentary system. Since the end of World War II, they've had more than 40 different prime ministers and over 60 different governments, if you count every time that there's like a cabinet reshuffle um, or turnover in the executive as being a new government. Now, just because a place like like Italy has lots of turnover, it doesn't mean that the crisis in a, in a government is a crisis of regime where democracy itself becomes threatened. All right, so, so there, there's been a lot of instability and a lot of turnover, but there's also some, some ways that even Italian politics has been stable in, in, in certain ways, because a lot of the prime ministers, so, so they've had 40 different prime ministers, but not, it's not like they've had 40 different people in that office. 
All right, many of the prime ministers have been elected multiple times, and many more than three times. Uh, the most recent being Silvio Berlusconi, who was elected uh, three times in in Italy. But but that's an example of of one of the more unstable parliamentary systems. But not all governments are unstable. Especially in, in, in your parliamentary systems, they have through time developed power sharing models that tend to be more inclusive and allow more groups to have a say in decisions. And parliamentary systems tend to include these many different groups and parties and interests through things like the electoral rules that generally favor multi party systems. And also through cooperation, which can happen when different groups in society have reasons to power share and to to build trust with each other, all right, because of electoral rules or because there's going to be a coalitional government. These incentives exist. Otherwise, you go, you end up like Belgium did for you know multiple years not having government and you just basically had an executive that continued to to function but not actually make any changes or move society in one way or another. All right, so moving on to democratic institutions in divided societies or executives and some of the other institutions in, in divided societies, there's generally two main approaches that scholars have advocated. And the first is called centripetalism or the centripetal approach, and the other is consociationalism, or the consociational or power-sharing approach. So centripetalism, think of this as moving towards the center. You In this approach to, um, to devising institutions in a divided society, and, and remember, a divided society, it can be many things, but most often you're talking like ethnic divisions, racial divisions, religious divisions, um, things, things of that nature. So centripetalism would say, we need our, our everybody to move towards the center. We need to emphasize national unity. We need to depoliticize the ethnic or religious divisions and help bridge these social cleavages and create incentives for the majority to accommodate minority groups. So that's the philosophy behind centripetalism. And the institutions that they would create in order to do this include the instant runoff voting electoral system. So in this system, what you would do is you would have single-member districts, but voters rank the candidates in order of preference. Now, these districts are drawn to incorporate multiple groups. So it's not like if you've got a religiously divided society that... Religion A is represented all in one district, and B in another, and C in another. All right, you would want districts that incorporate most, if not all, groups. This way, if a candidate is going to win, they've got to moderate their position. All right, so so you have this instant runoff voting where you rank the candidates, and if no candidate receives a majority, which they probably won't, if the districts are drawn right, then there's a runoff based on ranking orders. So these politicians or candidates, they have to moderate their position 
to win the election because they can't appeal only to their base. They can't appeal only to their ethnic group or their religion. And they have to appeal to the other groups as well. So they can't be as radical or as biased towards one group as they might otherwise be. So you have to moderate your position to win an election because being listed as second or third is crucial to winning to winning the election. Now, under this centripetal model, they would also advocate a presidential system, and this kind of goes along with moving to the center. You want one person that can appeal to everybody, and they have to moderate. You just can't appeal to your core constituency. Whereas they would argue against the parliamentary system or proportional representation because they would say, look, you could you could appeal just to your small ethnic group or religion or your big ethnic group or religion. Okay. And then they would also argue that unitary, it could be a unitary or a federal system. It depends on the context. It kind of depends on the the national um, history and culture. But one thing that is crucial in this in this model for devising institutions in a divided society is that the nation needs to have national control over resources to ensure equitable distribution. You don't want one group in the north that of an oil-rich country that's got all of the oil and other groups in the south and they don't they don't have any natural resources or very few so the group in the north gets to keep everything you want the national government to control everything so they can redistribute the profits from that okay so that's the centripetal model and this was advocated by people like uh, Donald Horowitz which in your article this week by Liphart you're going to see criticisms of because he is a uh, an advocate of the consociational or power sharing democratic model. All right, and this model is is significantly different. You can almost think of this as as, as like a, a mirror opposite. So in this model, they basically accept the reality of ethnic of ethnic divisions. Um, or other divisions, religious divisions, they won't be erased according to this view. So they kind of accept that this is just the way the world works, which may seem a little bit like like a downer, but let's keep going and see if it makes sense. Um, So in this model, the consociational model argues that we, we need to create institutions that are going to lessen the ethnic divisions. We need to put in place mechanisms to protect minority rights. We need to assure minority participation in politics and create incentives for collaboration. But there also needs to be this spirit of pragmatic compromise and tolerance. And these are all gone into in a lot more detail in the article for this week. But that's those are the basic like that's the philosophy behind what needs to happen. Okay, and the institutional elements for consociational democracy include a parliamentary system with a proportional representation electoral system. And you would 
So what this would do is it would include power sharing in the executive. So there would be rules against the cabinet being dominated by one party, one ethnicity, one religion. It would be it would be spelled out in the rules that there had to be a certain percent of this party or this religion or this ethnicity or all of the ethnicities, religions and parties that are in that in that country that you're trying to devise these these institutions for. Now, they would also argue that you want a president that is head of state and but but this person wouldn't be directly elected by the population. They would be indirectly elected. And this the consociational view also argues for a federal system. And this is especially in divided societies with geographically concentrated communal groups. So like I said before, with the centripetal model, where they say the national government needs to control the resources in the consociational model, they would argue that, well, you've got these ethnic divisions you're not really going to overcome or religious divisions you're not going to overcome. So you need to do a federalist model to give these groups some autonomy over, you know, the, the religion or the way that schools are run or certain um, resources that these groups hold dear. All right. So, so with this federalist design, you can give these groups a little bit of autonomy and, you know, let them control some aspects of daily life within their region. And then the last thing that the consociational, um, the consociational model argues for is that there's judicial review. All right, and the example to to look at for a consociational model, as was mentioned back in week two when I interviewed Dr. Shauna Meehan, is in Northern Ireland. They basically used a consociational model to um, to help heal their society after the troubles. All right, so. I hope this has has been clear, and I just wanted to run through it in order to, to give you some examples and give you things to look for, but make sure that for your reflection question that you're combining stuff from the, the previous two weeks and this week, and that you're answering all parts of the question. So in there, it, it's got the four things that you have to answer. So make sure that that you're choosing those and not not just saying, well, I'm going to do a proportional representation system. But, well, why are you not doing a presidential system or first past the post? So make sure you explain why you're not doing the others or I want to do a presidential system because X, Y and Z. This means I don't want a parliamentary system because of these reasons. All right. So make sure you're answering that on both sides. All right. And again, if any of this is is unclear or you have questions about or, or I referenced something that you're unsure about, um, make sure to comment in the discussion under this on Canvas and, you know, keep up on the readings, keep up on your quizzes. Uh, I know it's only week seven, but you've got 
uh, reflection due in week seven. You've got the class life link due in week eight, and then another reflection in week nine. So, and then you got a couple weeks off, and then you'll you'll have the the final paper. So, but here you kind of get hit a few weeks in a row with with things to turn in. So make sure you're staying on top of things, and make sure you're contacting me if something's not clear or if you have questions. But all right, so to kind of review what we went through in this this episode is we first talked about the debate around whether parliamentary system is or a presidential system is more stable. Then we talked about the role of the presidential style and how that can affect executive stability. And then we talked about some patterns of parliamentary rule, talking about Italy and talking about some other places. And then finally we got into the two main approaches to um, devising institutions and divided societies being the centripetal approach and the consociational approach. So again, you know, ask questions if things aren't clear, but until next time, have a good one. (laughs) 